Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Alex Kesar, who is the author of Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? A Really Relevant Question. Um, this was published just recently by Harvard University Press, and it is a deep historical analysis of not only the Electoral College, but it's the, the sort of attempts to reform it and sometimes many times why they have failed. But I'm going to let Alex tell us a little bit about that and how he came to this particular project. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thank you for inviting me to join you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this discussion of the Electoral College? Sure. Um, I, 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 I'm an historian, although for the last 20 years I've taught at, a, at the Kennedy School at Harvard, which is a public policy school. So I I straddle the worlds of history, politics, political science, uh, and policy. And I, I have, not particularly by design, but I, I have long focused my research on historical subjects that's, that have some contemporary policy relevance. I, my first uh, research book was a book about the history of unemployment. And then, most relevant to this project, I, I published a book in the year 2000, just before the 2000 election, on the right to vote, on the, hist- the, history, the history of the right to vote. And indirectly, that led me uh, into thinking about the Electoral College. I had made almost no mention of the Electoral College um, in my book on the right to vote. Perhaps not even, perhaps the answer is actually no mention. And... I was somewhat chagrined about that since it was published just before the 2000 election, but I tried to remedy that in in later editions. But I think I think, as was true for you know for many people, the 2000 election um, was you know jarred one into thinking about the electoral college, and then I found myself thinking over the next few years how strange it was that there was. no action in Congress or so little action in Congress about doing something about the Electoral College or, or even the, uh, the national commission on federal election reform, which was chaired by former presidents Ford and Carter, um, in the wake of the 2000 election, uh, actually decided collectively not even to discuss the Electoral College. So that, that piqued my curiosity. Um, and I began doing a little bit of delving into, uh, the subject, but what, what really began to make me think that, that this was a larger subject was several preliminary discoveries, if you will, or realizations. One was that there had been an enormous number of attempts to significantly reform or abolish the electoral college, that there have been many, many hundreds of amendment resolutions introduced uh, into Congress starting in the very early 19th century. Um, A second uh, 
fact of which I became aware was that uh, uh, public opinion polls had shown overwhelming support for a national popular vote beginning in the 1940s when we first had reliable polls and running well into the 21st century. We, we can talk about this. That has switched a little bit among Republicans only uh, since uh, the 2016 election. And then I also realized that we had come very, we, the United States, had come very close to eliminating uh, or dramatically changing the Electoral College on, on numerous occasions. Uh, in the early 19th century, in the, uh, the Senate passed amendment, uh, constitutional amendments to um, mandate that electors be chosen by district. And the Senate approved that, that, uh, that amendment resolution four times in four different years. And in one of those years, um, it fell only a few votes short of the needed two-thirds um, in the House. Much more recently, in 1969-70, uh, the House approved a constitutional amendment for a national popular vote by more than eight, an 80% vote. And then it was defeated by, the, uh, by a filibuster in the Senate. So that kicked up, that, all of that combined to really kick up this question about why, why do we still have it? Um, the shorthand conventional answers didn't seem satisfactory. And five years later, there's a book. And it is, and it is quite a uh, research undertaking, clearly, with regard to not only the footnoting, but the, the substance tracing this through all kinds of different attempts at the reform and, and a discussion of where and when it failed and so forth, which I found really fascinating and really accessible. It's a wonderfully written book also. Um, but it, I, I taught, I mean, I teach American politics. I, I try to explain the electoral college <laughs> on a, you know, every semester. Um, and I've, I've gone back into the early debates from the Constitutional Convention. Um, and, you know, I talk to my students about the fact that you know, this seems like the most bizarre way to elect a president, um, but they couldn't come up with another manageable way. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, what you saw in terms of the early discussion of the Electoral College? Well, at the Constitutional Convention, um, well, let me pause for a, for a second. I, the, the, your, your puzzlement in trying to explain this to students is one that I've encountered also. And one other rationale for the book was my realizing that the analytic question that I was posing, why do we still have the, the Electoral College, is also just a, it's a commonsensical question that several hundred million people ask every four years. Um, going back to the, to the convention, it's clear uh, reading through the records that we have of the convention, that they were there was a great deal of uncertainty. They had no models about how to choose um, a a chief executive. They, uh, they, you know, the traditions they had inherited were that one had uh, hereditary executives, and that was clearly not uh, not not going to happen. Um, and under the Articles of Confederation. And we also have to realize there was no separate executive branch. So the, the issue didn't come up then. Given that framework, the, um, 
most of the framers, when they got to Philadelphia, had in mind that basically that Congress should choose the president. They decided pretty early on to call the chief executive a president. And when they took some straw votes, the more, you know, a majority, sort of a majority of folks thought that, uh, well, Congress should choose the president. And then each time that came up, each time it got discussed, there would be some people who said, you know, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> that kills separation of powers. It invites corruption. Um, you know, they talked about whether maybe if it was just for a single term, it would be okay. But so, so they kept coming back to Congress as, um, as the group that should choose the president, but then being very uneasy about it. And they went around like this through the summer. They entertained other ideas, including a national popular vote, including having governors choose or electors of various sorts. Nothing seemed to uh, galvanize the group. At the end of August, um, after a long, hot summer in Philadelphia with no air conditioning, uh, the convention decided basically to take a break uh, and go on vacation for a week. And to leave various uh, items to a committee. I mean, it's a common thing we all do, right? We're deadlocked as a body, so we delegate a committee to try to hammer it out. The committee, which is called the Committee of Eleven or the Committee on Postponed Parts, came up with the idea of the Electoral College. It was then modified a little bit by, um, by the convention itself, but that was what entered into the Constitution. And I think, I, I think that the most useful way to understand how they came up with the basic architecture, not necessarily all the details, because there are some problems in the details that became apparent very quickly, but the basic architecture of the Electoral College, I think should be understood as an, a replica of Congress that does not legislate. I mean, the electoral colleges, in effect, um, have the same representation for each state as um, does Congress, but they avoid the corruption problems and the separation of powers problems because this particular replica meets only once and doesn't do any other business. I think it's also the case, I mean, it has to be said, that they did not know really how it would work. Um, they certainly were not envisioning political parties. They did not know whether the Electoral College itself would most frequently choose a president. They required a majority of electoral votes in order to become president. Some people thought that the electoral process um, would, would almost invariably end up uh, in the House of Representatives in the contingent election uh, procedure that they outlined. And, and so this, you know, again, this is, is a kind of bizarre uh, creation. As, as you note, I always talk about the, the Committee on Unfinished Parts or Postponed Parts um, with my students. Um, and then, of course, here I, here I am living in Wisconsin, and we are a battleground state. And so then the students always look at me perplexed and say, well, okay, that was what they did then, but why do we still have it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, an insightful question, I think. Exactly. 
And so then we kind of try to entertain why it is we still have it. Right. And um, I, I'm taking that as an invitation to yes. set out what I think are the reasons. <laughs> um, and, you know, first let me say and that uh, there is not a single answer to that question. There's not a single smoking gun. And it is also true that what has been conventional wisdom uh, often in the last 40 years, uh, the, uh, the conventional wisdom being that um, the small states have prevented electoral college reform because they get an extra proportion of electoral votes, um, that that is not the answer either. That, it, that, that's, simply, that's, that's simply not true. For one thing, most of the reforms that were proposed had to do with getting rid of winner take all and having district or proportional elections. Um, and that wouldn't have affected the small states at all. And, and even with a national popular vote, which would have an effect on the small states, it turns out that um, in key periods, many of the leaders of the movement to have a national popular vote were from small states. And in roll call votes, there is no indication of systematic small state opposition. Uh, to a national popular vote, so those 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 are that that's not a reason. I think I think that I would divide the the reasons why we still have it into several different categories. Um, one has to do, and this is the most arcane, but it's not unimportant, with the fact that the institution as designed is actually very complicated and labyrinthine and has a bunch of counterbalancing uh, measures in it. For example, the allocation of electoral votes um, clearly favors the big states. I mean, favors them in proportion to population. Uh, large states get a, a larger voice. But in the contingent election system, if nobody gets a majority, if it goes to the House, in the House, each state delegation gets gets one vote. And that means that the smallest states have the same power as the largest states. Uh, so what you, what you have is this mechanism which balances the two. You also have um, other uh, items in there. For example, the Constitution specifies that each state will choose electors in such manner as the state shall decide. The Constitution does not mandate winner-take-all, does not mandate any system. A state can choose in pretty much any way it wants. And in the early years, uh, there was a lot of experimenting and then a lot of partisan gamesmanship. Some states uh, did have popular elections where all the electoral votes were at stake. Other states had district elections choosing electors by district. In many states, in some years, the state legislatures chose electors by themselves. And, um, and that they, there, was no, there was no popular vote. The 1800 election, I think it's only six out of 16 states um, had popular votes. What this meant, part of the complexity that this introduced, was that, um, was that it, it became 
any national reform, any nationally mandated reform was going to bump into federalism issues. It was going to take away, any national mandate was going to take rights away from the states. And then the other way, the intricacy of it plays out is that it became difficult to reform any one piece of the Electoral College without changing other pieces as well. And that required large-scale deals that were hard to put together. So that's reason one has to do with the complexity of the institution. It's arcane, it's kind of boring and inside baseball, but it was true. A second factor which plays a role often, but not always, is simply partisan interest. Once you have an electoral system in place, people start learning to gain the system. They start calculating whether it works to their advantage or disadvantage. And usually, in some people's eyes, it does work to their advantage, at least for a while, and thus they don't want to reform it. Uh, for example, the, uh, um, in the late 19th century and into the early 20th century, uh, the Republican Party, after 15 years earlier, having taken a dramatically different position, the Republican Party becomes an adamant defender of winner-take-all which was earlier called the general ticket. Um, and, and they oppose schemes for district elections or proportional uh, allocation of electors. Well, why does the Republican Party take this position and cling to it for really half a century? Because they calculate that if you divvied up each state's ele electoral votes, they would lose about 40 to 45 percent of their electoral votes in a number of northern states, particularly in the Midwest. But they would not have commensurate gains in the South, where the Democratic Party um, had a stranglehold on the electoral process. So you take that position because you think it, it helps you win. Much more recently, we have a very similar story. The Republican Party, or most Republicans, have believed really since 1980 and certainly uh, in the 21st century, that the Electoral College benefits them, and thus they are utterly uninterested in reform or even talking about reform. The third factor I want to highlight here um, is a more disturbing and distressing factor, um, and this applies only to efforts to uh, eliminate the Electoral College and replace it with a national popular vote. And that factor is race and white supremacy um, in the South. Um, as we know, it's no surprise uh, to students of American history, um, the white South benefited from the Electoral College design before the Civil War because uh, white, because it was Southern states were given Presentation in Congress and thus electoral votes, not only for their white voting populations, but for three fifths of other persons, as they were called, uh, also known as slaves. So the white South had disproportionate influence in presidential elections uh, prior to the Civil War. What's less well known, substantially less well known, uh, is that after the Civil War and after Reconstruction, when the white supremacist redeemer governments come into power in the South and disenfranchise African Americans again, um, and pretty systematically, um, despite the 15th Amendment, um, 
they then, in effect, are benefiting from what amounted to a five-fifths clause. In effect, African Americans counted fully towards representation in Congress and electoral votes, but once again, they could not vote. This gave white Southerners significantly augmented power in presidential elections. And they did not want to surrender that power by having a national popular vote. And behind the scenes and in Congress, they fought uh, ferociously to keep that from happening. The culminating event of that strand of the story was indeed the Senate filibuster in 1970, which killed uh, the constitutional amendment introduced by Indiana Senator Birch Bayh. Um, which had already been approved by the, by the House. Um, and that filibuster was led by Southern Senators Sam Irvin, Strom Thurmond, and James Eastland, after Eastland, and with the help of Thurmond, had also held the, uh, the resolution up in the Senate Judiciary Committee for a year. It was the South that defeated uh, the Buy Amendment in 1970. And so in terms of, I mean, you, you, you trace a lot of the issue around race because you do spend a lot of time both, you know, before the Civil War and after the Civil War unpacking sort of the ways that the, the, the Electoral College was ultimately put into practice and then the complexity of, you know, some of the shifts around it. But one of the aspects of the book that I also found really fascinating and that you spend a lot of time on is the the unit rule aspect that we call in political science right. when we talk about it in my classes, the unit rule versus proportional representation versus the district rule. Um, and that you are sort of arguing in the book, at least this is what I understood, that this has also been a key aspect of some of the difficulty with regard to the Electoral College. Can you explain this a bit more in terms of how this particular way that the states decided to use or implement the Electoral College has had such an effect on it? Sure. Well, let me say first that the unit rule or general ticket or uh, winner take all um, became dominant only gradually in the course of the first 40 years of our nation's history. Um, it's, it appears in the 1790s um, and again in, you know, in subsequent years from time to time, almost everyone at the time, it's remarkable, just about everybody starts uh, saying that the unit rule is not what the framers intended and that it's not a good thing. Uh, because it effectively discounts the votes and opinions of those who do not happen to be in the majority in a given state. But political parties, if they think they're going to be dominant or if they are dominant, like it, because it means that they can get all of a state's electoral votes uh, by, uh, by winning that state. And I, I would say the consensus opinion, and this is where we get into interesting and the political calculations and, um, and, and things which we see operating today as well. Um, the consensus uh, in the early 19th century was that we should get rid of this 
but no state really wanted to go first because to get to dismantle the uh, winner take all or the unit rule, which had became dominant in the course of the first 30 years, was to reduce your state's power in relation to other to other states. Now everyone kind of agreed that if we all did it, um, that would make much more sense. Um, but nobody wants to go first, and then that theme actually recurs throughout U.S. history. What the it's it's the unit rule that uh, that really is responsible for uh, the bizarre conduct of our national elections now and um, and really for a long time. Because what it what it has meant is that there is no point in campaigning or putting resources uh, into any state which seems clearly uh, to favor one candidate or or another. The resources are only put into states that are battleground states or swing states, as we now call them. Uh, about sixty or seventy years ago, they were called doubtful states. Um, and that, that changes the entire shape of, of our political campaigns, uh, not only in terms of who shows up where to, to campaign, um, but also in terms of, uh, what, what platforms are like and what is said and what is promised. And, and as somebody who has both lived in a swing state, um, <laughs> currently, yeah, and right. also not in swing states. Um, I, I, I mean, I've experienced the difference in terms of um, visits from candidates and advertising and, you know, just over the border in Illinois, they don't see nearly as much advertising. <laughs> right. No, I, I had that experience. I mean, I, I live in Massachusetts, um, which is not a swing state um, and hasn't been in quite, in quite some time. And but I remember in one recent election, I forget I forget which it was. It might have been 2012. Um, I happened to be in the weeks, sometime in the weeks before the election. I mean, here in Massachusetts, you never see a presidential campaign. Occasionally, you'll see. I mean, that's not true. You'll see an occasional one, which is aimed at New Hampshire, which is in the same media market. But it's very very spare. It doesn't happen very often. And this one election campaign, I happened to be at a conference in a in a battleground state, you know, someplace in the Midwest. Um, and I turned on the television in my hotel room and it was like nonstop presidential <laughs> campaign. Hits. I was like, what is going on here? Uh, and it was also really annoying. I don't know how people put up with it. That's why we all cut the cables. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you, I mean, you do talk about this is, and you're absolutely right that the, the unit rule shapes the way that the, the campaign happens. Um, and that that's also the case going back quite some time in terms of, you know, where candidates actually put effort in. Um, and so we have this electoral college that, you know, prioritizes my state over your state, um, aside from fundraising. Uh, and And then again, my students ask me, you know, like, okay, how do we get rid of it? And I said, well, <laughs> you need to amend the Constitution, Constitution to the United States. 
And as you point out in your book, and this is also what I say to my students, this is one of the things that's been introduced most <laughs> in terms of reforms to the United States Constitution. And yet on so many occasions, you know, either a filibuster in the 1970s or, you know, not making it through Congress in other points, it hasn't come forward as an amendment to the Constitution. Right. And, 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 and that has often been on partisan grounds. I mean, you know, it's just an electoral system that's in place. People, parties start calculating and they calculate what's in their interest and what's not, even if it's not necessarily in the country's interest. But that also introduces, a, you know, an issue or problem. And I'm sure you've discussed this with your students, too. And, and I treat it at some length in the book, which is that periodically uh, activists in some states or partisan leaders in some states um, try to get rid of the unit rule on a state basis. A state can decide to do it. Um, your state or my state could choose to get rid of, uh, to get, to get rid of the unit rule. Um, and, you know, there's one story which I tell at length in the book about, about Michigan, which in fact did briefly uh, get rid of the uh, unit rule when Democrats briefly came into power in the state legislature and they passed a law. And the Republicans fought it extremely hard the president of the United States got involved in denouncing it. They fought it to this change for district elections to the Supreme Court, which was preposterous that they thought it would be declared unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court, although uh, although it had a it had a friendly minority, majority, was unanimous in rejecting the Republican suit. Um, but Michigan tried, and there was a lot of concern at that point that a lot of other states were going to be quotes Michiganized. <laughs> Of a a a verb or a, a participle that I don't think I've heard in any other context, um, and you know this was out of Republican concern of losing electoral votes, and they really they came down like a ton of bricks on this. And in Michigan itself, the Republicans came back into power, and they immediately reinstituted the unit rule and punished the Democrats for having dared to do it. In more recent times, um, you know we see similar efforts by both Democrats and Republicans at different times to have a state get rid of the unit rule. The, I mean, my favorite assembly of anecdotes there uh, involved uh, first North Carolina, which I think it's 2007, but I might be off by a, a year or so. North Carolina, the Democrats still controlled the state legislature. And there was a proposal afoot which had been discussed really for a number of years and brought up before, but uh, but they had the votes to pass it to institute district elections in North Carolina. North Carolina had been voting Republican, majority Republican, likely would continue to do so, but that would that would that would give the Democrats about seven electoral votes, six or seven electoral votes if they did that. They were on the brink of instituting this when the, the leaders in the legislature got a call from Howard Dean, the head of the DNC at the time. And Dean asked them not to go ahead uh, and do this, to, to shelve it for a while. Why? I mean, Dean 
personally was probably in favor of district elections. I don't know that as a fact. But why do they want to shelve it? Because in California, at exactly the same time, Republicans had introduced a measure to have a district system in California. Um, and they wanted to do that, not because, because they knew that the state was solidly blue, but they, there were 22, uh, I, th I think the figure was 22, uh, Republican congressional districts in the state. They figured they could peel off 2022 electoral votes if California went through a district system. And what Howard Dean and the Democratic Party wanted to avoid was being in a situation where they were in favor of districts in North Carolina, but against them in California. Uh, and it wasn't a numerical trade-off, seven against 22. So each, so in many different states, this has come up at times, and it just encounters um, a combination of these partisan ob obstacles and a desire, again, not to be the first mover, because you could lose clout by being the first mover. I know there was actually recently an effort in Wisconsin on this, in this regard. And, and I believe in 2004, there was a weird situation in Colorado because it was yes. a ballot um, and it was supposed to apply to the election in Colorado in <laughs> 2004. And there was a lot of discussion about whether that was constitutional or not. Yes. No. In fact, I do discuss that in the books. It's yeah. The Colorado situation. Yeah. Was, I don't know why they added on that ingredient that it would take place in effect retroactively <laughs> that seemed to complicate matters exponentially <laughs> right right <laughs> bad decision and and so i also talked to my students when we try to understand the electoral college um about the fact that we do have two states that do not follow the unit rule um, and then the students often ask me, you know, why they do it. And I explain that it's merely for political science professors to explain a confusing thing <laughs> that's even more confusing. Um, and they sometimes buy that explanation. <laughs> um, so Maine and Nebraska do not have the unit rule. Um, although I believe there was an attempt by Nebraska to reinstitute it after 2008. Yes, yes. Um, no, and, and they're both anomalies, um, and, and, they, and, and, they, and their adoptions did not come at the same time. Maine adopted uh, a district system of sorts in the late 1960s, um, you know, part, partly out of conviction and partly because the state sort of had, uh, you know, it, it, had, it had some Democratic areas in a largely Republican state, but it wasn't a big deal. And, and it was interesting also because somehow... Um, in Maine, the fact that having districts would, would lead a state to kind of lose power or clout didn't matter much as an argument because the view was that they didn't have much power anyway. <laughs> they were a small state. No one particularly paid attention to them. Um, and maybe they would actually get more attention uh, if they used districts. The Nebraska uh, switch away from the unit rule happens in the 1990s uh, and it reflects both splits within the states but it's also a, a particular period in the early 1990s um, when there are a lot of state efforts going on most of them being promoted by democrats um, who have 
lost the three previous presidential elections um, and yet still have uh, some significant influence in state legislatures. This is particularly true in the South, uh, where, where, where Nebraska is not. Um, and, but there, there was an interesting combination. I don't, I don't know the full story. I talk about it, and I feel like I have moderate confidence in what I learned. But, uh, but in effect, a few somewhat renegade Republicans who simply believed that this was a better way to do things, um, combined with Democrats uh, to make this change in the early 1990s, they also believed that, it, that the, the prospect of the state not going, being entirely Republican would actually draw presidential visits. Um, and presidential attention. And that turned out to be true, not immediately. Um, but for example, the Obama campaign uh, set up an office um, in Omaha in 2008. Um, and there have been, there have been presidential uh, v visits since then. As far as I know, the Republicans, have, the, uh, the mainstream of the Republican Party in Nebraska has tried repeatedly to repeal that, go back to the unit rule, uh, but it hasn't worked. And, and so you talk about all of these different ways that the Electoral College has, you know, sort of attempts have been made to reform it internally. The states can do these things without a, con a constitutional amendment. There have been so many attempts at some form of a constitutional amendment. Of course, we have the 12th Amendment that slightly reforms it. Right. Um, but it, towards the end of the book, you also draw this history forward. Um, and talk a little bit about the the compact, um, but also, you know, what are our prospects within the last 20 years? We've had two elections where the Electoral College went one way and the popular vote went another way. Uh, that, that, that's true. That's true. And I would say that that as long as the country is as polarized as it is, the prospects for constitutional uh, electoral college reform are pretty slim. Um, and, and as long as the Republic, as, as Republicans in large numbers continue to believe that the electoral college works for them. But I think the, but those things I think could change. Um, and the other, Thing which I think, I mean, look, look, I, I mean, I basically I've, I've written a book which is about 200 years of failed attempts. So I can't conclude at the end saying, oh, this is going to be easy, uh, you know, to change, you know, looking forward. I think there are patterns in the history which suggest some increasing commitment to democratic values, um, which I think is important. And we also have right now a very energetic pro-democracy movement, um, which is seeking to do many things, including uh, ele electoral college reform. I also think that a lot depends on party alignments and party systems that are always in flux. If, for example, in the coming election, a number of traditionally red states turn purple or even light blue, um, that might change the thinking about this. 
I think that there's also, you know, one of the uh, things I asked myself, well, there are two, there are these two periods when we came closest to national uh, electoral college reform. One was in the 1960s and then to the 1970s, even mid to late 1970s, because it came up in Congress again there. But that's one period. The other period is during the, quotes era of good feelings from about 1812 uh, to the mid-1820s. Um, well, what those two periods had in common was that the party systems were in flux. In the, first, in the first of these, in the era of good feelings, I mean, in effect, for a period of a decade or a little bit more at a national level, there really was only one party. Um, and so duopoly partisan considerations or, or the kind of sort of bifurcated view of the polity that can result in a two-party system was not was not operating and in the late 1960s and in 1970s um i mean it was still the, the republicans and the democrats but the party system was in the midst of a major transformation as southern democrats moved slowly and then more quickly uh into the republican column um this this was a party system in flux, when I when I read the congressional debates uh, from the 1960s and from the 1970s, the committee records and the congressional debates, and I've read all these carefully, um, it seemed very clear to me that there was not a two-party system in place in the 1960s um, and 1970s. There was uh, the Democratic Party was really split in half, and then and then one one half was leaving. And the Republican Party also had significant schisms in it uh, between the new Republicans and the uh, the older, much more moderate Republicans who had favored electoral college reform, by, by the way. I mean, even as late as the mid 1970s, Gerald Ford and Bob Dole both favored a national popular vote. Ronald Reagan did not. And and so I mean I I understand that 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 particular period this is something Lee Dropman has talked about in his book on the Doom Loop um, that the parties were not really two parties that there were essentially four parties that were in two parties um, and so that was a point where as you say the sort of partisan demarcations were much more fluid um, but now we have partisan demarcations that are so rigid. Um, and, and we also have seen that the electoral college as structured, um, is an advantage for the Republican party. So why would there be a move to necessarily, you know, get rid of it? Um, but I understand also that the larger states like Texas or California, you know, sort of feel like their voices are not heard in lots of ways in the electoral college. Um, right. And I, I think, but, 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 you know, let me add a, a couple of things to this. One is that um, I don't think it's out of the question. Again, a lot depends on what happens in the, in the, in the next election. My crystal ball is no better than anyone else's. Um, but I think that uh, I don't think it's out of the question that there is going to be some major reconfiguration uh, of, of of the parties with the republican with the republican the republican party could end up after this election you know looking at itself and concluding that it's it's a fragment that cannot win 
nationally. Now, I, that, that prognosis could turn out to be, you know, 100% wrong, but I don't, I don't, I don't think that's, uh, I, don't, I don't think that's out of the question. The other, the other thing, I, you know, I would say is that um, when I look at the sweep of history, the positions of parties and of individuals um, have often changed, and especially, you know, they become ingrained, they become uh, reified. But you know, for example, the Republican conviction that it benefits them. Well, in two thousand four. The Electoral College benefited the Democrats. George Bush won a significant popular vote majority and uh, had Ohio, had 60,000 votes flipped in Ohio, and John Kerry won Ohio. John Kerry would have been president. Uh, now, somehow that, that fact after 2004 did not seem to penetrate the Republican mind uh, very deeply, but uh, I, I think... I think that the history of partisan predictions about who is benefited by the Electoral College and, and who is not, that in that history, there is a long, long track record of mistakes and projections into the future of what turn out to be short-run trends. And, and you also talk about in the book, and this is, we haven't really talked about it that much, is the particularity of the Electoral College as written into the Constitution that if nobody gets a majority, it moves to the House of Representatives. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it, you know, it's completely weird. And that, that's a, that is a system, for example, this is why, you know, things shift. Nobody really believes that that should be there now. <laughs> Uh, um, I mean, you know, and if and if we ever had to use it, I mean, of course, whoever thought that they would benefit from it um, would say, "Oh, yeah, this is good," you know. Now, but the fact is that uh, that it would be, you know, it would, it would be a public disaster if we had to use it. And you know, the the last time people got really worried about this was in 1992, when Ross Perot was a candidate, and before, you know. It's arcane history, but, you know, Perot was getting about 20% in the polls, maybe even 25% high 20s. And then he pulled out of the race for some mysterious reasons. And then he went back in and he still did very well, but didn't win any states. But before he pulled out, uh, Congress was really worried about this. There were congressional hearings, even, you know, as unlikely a radical reformer as Mitch McConnell wanted to change the contingent election system. Uh, in 1992, saying, I think his words were, it was preposterous that the House of Representatives should choose the president. <laughs> I don't see that happening in this, you know, I don't see a scenario with that for, in this election, but uh, it could happen. Yeah, it's, I mean, again, it's a, it's, you know, as I sort of go through this with my classes and like, oh, but wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like your students get very well informed on the electoral college. Well, I'm I try. Impressed. I mean, I, I I sort of ask them at the end of the semester, can they explain the electoral college to their grandmothers? And, you know, about two thirds of them say maybe. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. But you know, it's also what you were talking about in the book is the electoral college is a federal system to elect a national representative that is based on the states. 
Right. <laughs> yes. Very, very well said. And at one level, that could look like an ingenious piece of institutional engineering. Um, and at another level and in practice, it's a welter of confusions. Right. And, and again, I also, I, I mentioned this to my students, the electoral colleges. So such an odd creation that nobody else in the world decided to have one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it does tell you something. And, and, and actually, and, and even in the United States, within our states where you could imagine that some replica institutions might be created to elect governors, no one has contemplated that. So you, you suggest that there might be hope. I... <laughs> You know, I'm not really known for my optimism. Um, and again, I've written about this long history of failures. But I, th I think I have, I have some hope. I do, I do have some hope uh, that this, uh, this, this institution, I think, I think the, word, the two adjectives that have been used most commonly to describe the Electoral College over the 19th century and the 20th century are cumbersome and archaic. Uh, uh, and I do have some hope that this cumbersome and archaic institution uh, might be dislodged. Well, um, <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Um, but thank you for joining me today, Alex Kesar, um, author of Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? Right. A Good Question. Um, published in 2020 by Harvard University Press. Great to talk to you about this book. Well, thank you. Thank you again, Lily, for giving me the occasion to talk about it. It's been a pleasure chatting about this. Book. Thanks.